Understanding China has become more difficult than ever, yet also more important than ever. Whether the U.S. and China are rivals, partners, or a mix of both, effective policy will only be as good as the information on which it is based. My name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm the senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also have had the privilege of being one of the few American scholars who has traveled back and forth between Washington and Beijing in recent years. I'm a firm believer that field research, direct observation, talking, and listening to Chinese perspectives must be a part of our toolkit to understand the People's Republic of China. So join me as I speak with Chinese leaders from business, government, and academia, and foreigners who have spent many years living and working in China. What makes China tick? Where is the country going? What connects us? And what divides us? We'll dive into all that and more on this podcast. Welcome to China Field Notes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this podcast of China Field Notes, where I talk with some of the most important voices from China, both Chinese and foreign residents of China. And I am delighted today to be joined by Jurg Lutke. Who has to rank, I think, amongst one of the most important foreign residents of China of the last fifty years? Jurg, welcome to the program. It's an honor to be in this very fine group of people. So let me first give folks a sense of your background and why we invited you to the program and why we're so honored to have you with us. Jurg arrived in China first in 1982, so he's been there now for 41 years. He joined ABB as a finance and administration manager in 1988, and then as their chief rep in 1993. He joined his current firm, BASF, in 1997. He is now their general manager and chief representative in China, a position he will step down from in 2024. In 1999, he was the founding member of the German Chamber of Commerce in China. And was its chairman of the board from 2001 to 2004, and for 16 years, from 2007 until earlier in 2023, he was president of the EU Chamber of Commerce in China, an organization in which he is still involved, in which there are 1,200 members in eight cities across China. He's also on the board of the German think tank Marx, which produces some of the most important research on China of anybody. But honestly. I think it's just fair to, to summarize very simply that Yerk is the most important foreign business person to be in China since reform and opening of the last fifty years. So we are delighted to have you with us, and I think the conversation will justify that conclusion. Let's get started. As I mentioned, Yerk, you arrived in China four decades ago, and you started in business in the late '80s. Some things have changed. Some things have stayed the same. What are the biggest differences and similarities that you've noticed of the time that you've been in China? Well, a couple of my good friends、uh, and myself, we took the train from Germany, Heidelberg, in, in summer 1982, past the Soviet Union, crossed Mongolia, and went into Beijing just to get a feel for China. And what strikes me still is the kind of、uh, curiosity people had, the kind of openness. 
It was a country just coming out of the dark ages of the Mao Zedong uh, Cultural Revolution, and people really embraced us, asked us, how is it going, what is uh, happening in Germany, and so on. And today, uh, the difference is stark. It's, it's very materialistic. I hardly come across Chinese who are curious. I think there is a, a lot of misunderstandings. At that time, there was an attempt in order to overcome differences and misunderstandings. And of course, the others are more practical. I mean, everybody was wearing something blue or something green, uh, jackets and shorts and pants and whatnot. And the girls that were married had uh, short hair and the non-married girls had braids, so that distinguished them. There was a very strong sense of we can learn something from the West. And I think that has been fading away during this massive global financial crisis in 2009. And then, of course, I think Brexit and Donald Trump basically took care of the rest. So in a way, it is in many ways a quite different China, particularly a different China in the engagement with foreign countries. And of course, you know, when it looks into the streets, that time I remember people from the countryside paid 50 fen in order to take a picture with a Shanghai model that was a taxi at that time. And now you have 5 million cars on the street of Beijing. So, I mean, it's, it's a different world. It really is. And the high point of that initial opening period where there was extensive curiosity and excitement may have come with the Olympics in 2008 with significant changes after that. You already mentioned the global financial crisis. It was sort of the Olympics, uh, which was definitely a high point. The folding up of the Western world in this uh, global financial crisis. I remember very well my friend Liu Kang, who was heading the Banking Regulatory Commission, saying, you know, you come to me and you want to give me advice on the banking sector and your own financial system is imploding. He had a fair point. And then it was Expo in Shanghai. And shortly after that, of course, Brexit and, and Xi Jinping made the point with his propaganda to really showcase uh, the West in its worst possible points. So it, it, within a very short period of time, the kind of we want to be like the West, in particular after joining WTO in 2001, turned into, oh, no, there's nothing to learn from those guys. It's an arc of history, which I think was unexpected by many. And uh, we're at a different point than we expected. We've known each other for a long time. And I've just been an admirer of you both in your work at the Chamber and at, at BASF. I hope it's okay if I let people know that you shared this with me, that comparing your job at the EU Chamber and your colleagues across the street at AmCham China that you thought that the role of AmCham was to come to Washington or tell the West, hey, calm down a little bit. China's got problems, but we need to figure things out. But your job was to heighten and raise anxieties or attention of China back in Germany and Brussels and, and Europe. Am I remembering correctly? Are those still the two different approaches or are the two chambers increasingly similar? No, you have an excellent memory. It was exactly this way, at least until four or five years ago, until uh, Europe changes its mode and its mode about China. I remember John Watkins telling me that he has to be very careful not to pour oil into the fire of the Congress. It was clearly that I was really struggling, particularly in 2016 17, uh, with the fact that I really wanted investment screening because SOEs were buying up companies left and right. And of course, for listed companies, it was impossible to compete against them. I came across all these, uh, in particular, Scandinavian uh, people in the commission who says, oh, no, freedom of capital and so forth. I sensed the great naivety in Europe uh, and lesser so in the U.S., 
But that has really changed. I'm afraid that China took care of that. It's far more antagonistic. And now I can sense that actually I was just back this week from Brussels, where I had the privilege of briefing EU President, Commission President von der Leyen, who's coming next week to meet the leadership here. And I all of a sudden found myself defending China. So a lot of things have changed. But let me briefly say something on the European Chamber. You know, I was one of the 51 founders in 2000. Uh, I wasn't that long a president. Actually, I had two breaks in between. I was heading this organization for 10 years and just stepped down in May this year in 2023. And it is complementary to this uh, member state chamber, such as the German chamber, which I co-founded in 99. The German, French, Spanish, Italian chambers are all about trade promotion. We really focused on advocacy and lobby. And I think that sharpened the sense of mission that we had. And that distinguishes us from the MCHAM because the MCHAM is both. It is trade promotion organization as well as advocacy. Now, we actually really focused and I managed to get the chamber to come up with these content papers. I remember very well, 2009, overcapacity, I repeated this, 2016, I think our best paper was in 2017, March, made in China 2025, where actually I warned the world that China is planning to get big in a couple of industries and it will end in tears, meaning overcapacity. And I was outlining, and again, six years ago, that it would be in solar, wind, EVs and batteries. And now there we are. So in a way, it was also a privilege in order to be an organization which is young, unlike Amchem, that is much more senior, much more developed. So I could manage to actually develop a chamber that was totally unified, which is ironic because Europe is never unified. And Amchem, America, American Amchem is three islands, so to speak. And I managed to get out of these chapters. Actually, we have nine cities, seven chapters with 1,800 members, this local position paper, because it was I was very keen not just to outline topics. We did decoupling, we did uh, carbon neutrality, but also what is specific in Shenyang, what is specific in Chengdu and Chongqing. And so we replicate this now and we can have, I think, the best papers locally, because if you come up with something out of Beijing, national position paper, it does resonate. Every city and every region in this continent, China is very different. So that's what I think really made the European Chamber a very valuable organization. You certainly have provided an immense amount of thought leadership. And at the same time, as you mentioned, you know, evolving views, you know, I was just in Europe as well and encountered both sides of the equation. Officials who were quite concerned, and I think the word overcapacity was the one I heard repeated most often. And so they're obviously very good readers of your work, but also paying attention to the right issues. But I also heard senior German business executive in a meeting with a crowd of skeptical officials who were very worried about China, talking about the importance of the China market and not burning bridges. How does one maintain that balance in an era of very intense competition between China and the West, Ukraine, China's own technological drive, domestic political pressures in China on private businesses and others? How do you thread the needle? Well, I guess that, A, you have to know your stuff. You have to be within business in order to know how supply chains work, how this investment climate is all about, what you actually realize in China and how China is changing your own organization. I mean, for example, we have this discussion, I guess, also in the US about diversification from China. We are dependent on China. And I'm trying to tell people, we European Union, 
27 member states invest in China between 8 and 9 billion every year. We do the same in Texas every year. You know, do we depend on Texas? I mean, of course, it's different from M&A in the US. Uh, by the way, in the US, every year, Europe invests 160 billion. You know, the US is far more important to European business than China is. But the view is totally different. So in a way, we are selling into China's European 27. We did sell 23% more into China than Switzerland last year. So are we dependent on the market of Switzerland? Not really, I guess. So people sometimes don't understand the figures that are behind it. You know, my colleagues in, in Brussels and in Berlin, they're trying to actually relate to the politicians. Listen, I need China as a fitness center. I need China to help me close the gap in the car industry. They are ahead of us. We are followers, which is a hard thing to acknowledge as a German, that the German car industry is a follower of the Chinese uh, car industry. But, you know, we have to be here in order to catch up. We can't just leave the battlefield. We have to fight or flight. We have to be here. Tesla does so. General Motors does so. So do the three German companies. So, and, and the other one is just innovation. You know, if you have a 50 out of the top 100 uh, universities in engineering chemicals in China, I mean, hey, you have a pool. So hence, you build up an engineering center here because you can't get the relevant people. And then on top of it, people assume that, you know, our headquarters are funding China. It's exactly the other way around. I think all the big boys, uh, German at least I know, including my own company, since about 10 years, we don't get any single euro from headquarters anymore. It's retained earnings, it's money we generate in China, and we pay between 24 and 50%, depending on the company, the dividends and the profit in these headquarters. So in a way, people in Berlin, Brussels, and Paris don't understand we are subsidizing our headquarters. Without the money we generate in China, we wouldn't do the kind of R&D that actually we would love to do. So anyway, the perception is very different. In particular in Europe, I think that uh, we are watching, or at least people watch uh, China and look through the glasses of Ukraine, Russia. This is not going to happen to us anymore. There is dependency. We have to de-risk. I think we developed in January, in particular in some areas, rare earths and APIs and so forth. But again, the thing, it gets sort of torn aside because China is a threat, and then everything gets defined by looking through these glasses. And I totally disagree. Well, I think it's extremely difficult in Washington and other places to find some middle ground and comfortable equilibrium where you can both push back against policies and approaches that you're deeply worried about while also recognizing the, the potential opportunities or the downsides of not being in China. Of course, the Chinese have the same challenge as well, maybe even more because they are so anxious about the U.S. and the West. China is, I tell people, safer, stronger, wealthier healthier than ever, their levels of anxiety, I think, far outweigh how they should be as well. I'm just curious because not only we're having a frank conversation today, it's reflective of you every day. There, there is no softer Jurg. There is no gloss ever. It's amazingly refreshing. How does one can keep doing that after 41 years in China where just about everyone you meet pulls their punches and is extremely careful. It's not that you're intentionally rude or mean to anybody, but you seem to be just unable to not be direct. And I'm curious, how, how, how do you do that? 
Well, first of all, I guess it comes from a lack of a proper education. I'm from the southwestern Germany, a very small village. I, I never visited university, really. I never graduated. I went through a very basic education. And I was just sort of, an, we call it an autodidact. Uh, the same as Joschka Fischer, a former German top politician who actually graduated as a taxi driver and was one of the best orators we had in Germany. I think it helps sometimes to have a lack of an educated language. And at the same time, you have to have a spine. You have to actually really believe in your principles and your values and don't shy away from that. And what helped was definitely uh, my personal experience uh, negotiating with a charismatic BSF leader, uh, several multi-billion dollar projects. Uh, Mr. Hambrecht was my mentor and he was really, really tough on the Chinese and they loved him. They, they respected him. They knew exactly that he's trying to get the best for his company as they were trying to get the best for their country. So if they see that someone is clearly taking a position, actually, they can figure out this person. They know that he's doing just the very best for his country, as I do for my country, Germany or Europe, as they do for themselves. So if you wobble and try to accommodate, I think they lose respect in many ways. So you have to be very polite. You have to be very understanding. You have to know your stuff, of course. But for me, it was the most important is like I was authentic. That's what actually I think got me uh, in no trouble in all these uh, 20 years that I was speaking up because people in the leadership also realized that I was speaking up for China, you know, against the sanctions on the Olympics. I was for the purchase of Hamburg Harbor assets uh, by Costco and other areas. I could sense it always that they, they are reaching out to me sometimes from within the system of saying, would you please raise your voice because we can count on you. And it was the case in April last year when I wrote a letter to Vice Premier that zero COVID is really not sustainable, not good. And it was leaked right away. And I found out it was leaked by someone in the state council to kickstart the policy debate. You know, sometimes they need this kind of clown or harlequin at the medieval courts in order to say stuff that maybe is not easy in doing it in front of the emperor. So for me, it was always, I'm a child of the Junji area. I admire the man. I met him many times, even in his retirement. And I must say that he was tough on China. He was tough on companies and everything because he always felt like China can do better. I'm absolutely anti-China complacency. And uh, I think that China can do better. So for me, it would be like letting China down by not reminding them actually that with reforms, they can perform better. That's a very good explanation for why you have credibility everywhere you go. Let me ask about another person that seems to have an immense amount of credibility around the world who we recently lost, Henry Kissinger, also originally from Germany. Kissinger is known for, among many things, opening the U.S.-China relations uh, with secret diplomacy, the Shanghai communique, and then for many decades advocating for the U.S. and China finding some equilibrium in a way to get along and standing in each other's shoes and trying to understand the deep concerns of the other what do you see as his legacy and both from a positive perspective as well as, you know, concerns or worries about his approach? In some ways, he was very careful in the words that he chose, very highly educated, you know, originally a professor. I'm just curious your take on him and his role in the West relations with China. I think the Chinese have really respected him because of his background, because of his history. 
his parents fled Germany in the 30s and so he was he was coming from a very difficult background refugee he had to find himself in a new language in a new environment and he was struggling i think people never really understood that he was a refugee's child and this kind of having a hardship distinguishes him from many many american politicians i guess that actually if you were getting raised in california or in maine you never had this kind of hardship i think that chinese realized that the man went through hell in order to actually get to where he was it was all his brain and his grit that got him there and he could he could exchange long historical things with joe and lai because the chinese love history he was definitely very good at it as a professor but also someone who has lived through history who returned to germany as an american soldier and basically reconciled with germany so they saw these many sh- shades that he had and then of course his luck was that he was advising Richard Nixon, you know, a guy who was possibly really bad on domestic policies, but he was in many ways a genius in foreign policy, particularly when it came to China and the Soviet Union. And he was not advising Donald Trump. You know, it's easier to be in the vicinity of a man who actually sees uh, this kind of lines that the Chinese liked Nixon and they like his job because they could sense that they see history, not just next quarter, next elections, but in the bigger picture. So that's why he was really accepted. Now, I was a lucky guy to have met him first time in 1989 in October when no one came to China. And we had an invitation by Parliament President Wan Li to meet in Diaoitai, uh, Henry Kissinger. First of all, I was stunned about his fluent German. He, I mean, he has a strong German accent, but I didn't realize he still is fluent in German. Second, he was a soccer fan, so am I. And third, during this dinner, someone whispered something in the ears, and shortly after, he broke up and says, guys, I have to leave. The Politburo in, in East Berlin just stepped down. I mean, it was just at the cusp of the fall of the wall, and he had to go to the CNN studios. So in a way, for him and for me, it was very emotional to see that the eastern part of Germany was going down. And in particular, as I witnessed the, the shooting on June 89, and he knew what was at stake in East Germany, everyone was wondering if there's going to be a Tiananmen in Leipzig, for example. And so I saw the man just for a dinner at that time. I met him a couple of times later. But it it, we, it was history in the making, in a way, you know. When, when I was with Kissinger, the thing is, do, do, do we like him, you know? And I said to him, you know, there was uh, East Germany. At that time, the communist leader, was his name was Ulbricht, and someone walked up, a foreigner, to a Eastern Berliner and says, do you appreciate, do you like Ulbricht, you know? And the guy said, oh, I can't really say here, you know? So he went behind this wall, had been walked down an alley and was hiding and then whispered into this foreigner's ears, I do like him. And then, then I said to his I think we all like you. He liked the fact that he was compared with an East German Politburo member and the fact that, you know, <laughs> we couldn't say it in public, we liked him. He was just rolling on the floor. And so I think the Chinese always saw him as someone who is able of zooming in in, into history and zooming out in order to see the present and sort of looking into the future. He was an exceptional man with all his flaws, of course. That's a very good description and really puts a human side to this historic figure. More recently, you know, he's continued to write in his later life about China. He visited China most recently in the middle of 2023. I saw him give a speech in October, late October, just a little over a month ago in New York to the 
National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, uh, very concerned about where things were going. Is there any part of his approach to China which maybe gave China too much sense of comfort? You mentioned one of the sources of your credibility is expecting more of China. Do you think the Chinese thought that Henry Kissinger put most of the onus on the West and and that China didn't have to do as much or because there is a debate about Kissinger's legacy that we'll have for a long time. And it's also about we've already been talking, what's the right approach to China going forward? And so just, just curious about your thoughts on that. I think the Chinese always realized that he was an authentic patriot. He really stood for the United States of America. And there was no doubt about it with all this pragmatism that, you know, you might challenge. But uh, I think that made it easy for them to figure it out. Uh, he never was pretending to try to be Chinese or to please the Chinese. Uh, I think he had a very straight and strong language when he liked them as well as when he disliked them. And he managed to keep this public and private separately, I guess. So in a way, he had a great authenticity with him that, again, the Chinese accepted. And again, he brought with him uh, also the knowledge that he had witnessed the demise of communism in Russia and the Soviet Union. He has basically commented on and witnessed the demise of communism in East Germany. And so in a way, they were always very curious if they could extract some sort of ideas out of him. Is it going to happen to us? I think the leadership in China is deeply insecure about uh, their own future, in particular as the history was not very nice to uh, communism. There is this trauma about criticism of Stalin by Khrushchev. There was the trauma of Perestroika and Glasnost, the kind of inability to reform him on Brezhnev, and then, of course, the wild years of Yeltsin. So they always wanted a little bit of comfort. It's like, do you see us going down the same road? And they expected him to explain that, you know. So in a way, that's why he got this uh, strong rapport with uh, Xi Jinping and all the other leaders over here. But I think his problem was his backyard. You know, he was a man of the 19th century, not 20th, 19th century. He was a fan of Metternich, uh, who got this Vienna Agreement in 1815 done. So in a way, he was outside the normal scope of people's understanding, particular, I guess, in the United States uh, and uh, also increasingly in Europe, as people that were understanding him, who went through wars, who went through Nazi and who went to East Germany, uh, the kind of people that experienced on their, their own skin uh, history have all gone. And today we are social media, we're internet, we're fast, uh, we have uh, Twitter and stuff like this. The man was not Twitter. He did, the guy was reading re War and Peace by, by Tolstoy. So he had a different approach. So for him, the biggest problem is how to relay today's complexity in simple language to people who actually have an attention span, possibly of five minutes. And that was not Henry Kissinger. You know, he's noted as a realist, very practical. In some ways, that realism was somewhat idealistic because it depends on people to identify their self-interest, recognize others, and be willing to compromise and put themselves in the shoes of others in an ideological age, in the age of social media. It's very, very difficult to do that when people have different universes of knowledge and what they call truth. It's really, really difficult. Looking ahead at China the next few years, people in the United States and elsewhere talked about peak China, that it's going downhill, that inevitable decline because of the demography, debt, uh, and also inevitable conflict in the Taiwan Strait, maybe somewhere else. What is your prognosis for where you think China is likely headed the next five to 10 years? 
Well, I guess it's rather plateau China with a little slope upward, um, maybe growth of 3%. Uh, they still have a lot of abilities. They have a grand population with great education and a lot of firepower still. Uh, urbanizations at 60%. Of course, they're aging like crazy and going to have 30% of the people in my age group, 65 at the year 2050. So it's just mind-blowing. But I guess that there is a strong coherence in the system. I guess the biggest stress is really in social area, the kind of uncertainty that people feel of a sudden anxiety and the kind of feeling that I'm not sure about my future anymore. That's very un-Chinese, you know, and I think COVID did this. The kind of shock December, January with this kind of tsunami going through the country. And then, of course, you know, if you have 66% of your wealth in real estate, if you have a real estate crisis, you really worry about your future. So in a way, yes, I guess that they're seriously struggling with the middle income trap. And definitely 10 or 20 years from now, we might look back and then the book of Susan Scher comes to mind. They might have overreached. So... Given where you see China headed, potentially with a slower growth, still making some progress, but facing these internal fissures and, and social challenges, what's the responsibility for your successors at BASF, at the EU chamber? What advice would you give those putting on your shoes in the coming years? You took over in an era when China was growing rapidly, when it was becoming more central in the global economy, when it was a, a period of optimism and that original curiosity, and things have changed. So what's the advice to your successors? I think on BSF, I'm far more relaxed. It's a big organization. It has uh, 31 locations with factories, 100 factories, I guess. And we have a $10 billion commitment, which we're just implementing. So in a way, I think they have realized the importance of the market. China stands for 50% of global chemical production. They know that we are in the fitness center. We have the most demanding customers. So let's do this. But I think that the company has also learned to look at China as a continent. Guangdong is important. Jiangsu is Important. So focus on these areas. And again, China is teaching us that they have the brains to help us on engineering in Brazil and America. They can help us on being faster coming out of products with products out of labs. So in a way, that's actually an easy thing in many ways. We just have to be more humble and have a lot to consider portfolio realignment because China has overcapacity left and right and center. But I think the sensitivity is there in the boardroom that China is important and, and remains important. I mean, just, just look at China growing slowly over the next five years and India growing strongly. Uh, the difference now is $15 trillion. And in 2028, the difference is going to be $17.5 trillion. So even if China as a crappy growth model, they're going to be one-time European Union bigger than India. On the European Chamber, I'm a bit more worried. It's a fragile organization. It really depends on unity across these nine cities uh, about finding the right language to find acceptance in the Chinese leadership. That is going to be more challenging now because there's a bit of more of an echo chamber. They don't want to be criticized. They don't want to be lectured on possible reform efforts they have to do. And then finding the right language with their constituency in Europe in order to make them see that actually it's a very dangerous situation to overestimate risks and underestimate opportunities as people just become very simple-minded in approaching China. And then again, you have to come up with content, time and again content. And that requests a lot of personal involvement from the president. So I, I really feel that Jens Esklund is the best guy we have, is our man at the front right now. But it's not going to be easy to have the 
same long history, deep engagement of a daytime job that I had with BSF. He has Maersk, which is by shipping, it's not manufacturing. And to have the understanding that it's a place where you have to be a little bit more humble and more cautious, actually, than maybe I was supposed to be in my turn because China has changed. So I find for my success in European Chamber, it's far more difficult than for a founding father like myself. Well, I bet you it wasn't easy when you were on the job. And even if you made it look easy, yes, you've painted quite a list of responsibilities and tasks that your successors face, but they're going to do it on the, on standing on your shoulders. I've really enjoyed the conversation today, but you've always been a mentor to me and all of us who are trying to understand China. And I want to thank you for joining us today and look forward to further conversations in your future roles uh, in China and the U.S., wherever we happen to cross paths. Well, I'm going to move to the Washington next year in July, so we're going to be your neighbor maybe. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Thanks so much, Jörg. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks for listening to China Field Notes. Stay up to date with our latest releases by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to great content. Until next time.